Thank you so much, praise team. Happy Sabbath, everybody. I know I bring Sabbath greetings from Pastor Walt. He's actually on vacation. Vacation. <clears throat> a, word, a word that he has not known for a year or two. He left on uh, Wednesday morning. Uh, went right to uh, Louisville. For anybody who needs translation, that's Louisville. <laughs> Louisville, okay? It's funny, on, uh, on he, I think Thursday, he went to the Louisville Slugger Museum and uh, walked into the lobby and had to face a life-size statue of Derek Jeter. <laughs> I feel sorry for an A's fan. Once they leave the Northern California area, there's nothing for them anywhere. <laughs> but uh, plenty of stuff to remind him that the Yankees are still on the planet. So I know he sends his greetings and uh, just hope that uh, he and Brenda are having safe travels. This is the celebration of their 30th anniversary, so they'll be back after, after Labor Day. So Let's start here. I was in the Spirit of the Lord's Day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. In ancient Rome, victories in battle were commemorated on arches on the roads, arches of triumph, if you will, and they have a long, long history. In Capernaum, they have found the, where the ancient site of the village of Capernaum, they found the, the arch that uh, was attributed to Titus when he sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. And there is this one relief where they show a Roman soldier carrying the menorah out of the temple, the seven branch candlestick, carrying it out. Our tour guide said that if you're ever in Rome, go look at the actual arch of Titus and you will see this same relief. And it is. It's the exact same one of this soldier carrying out the menorah out of the temple, carrying away the light, carrying away the Shekinah glory that existed in the temple where God was supposed to dwell. What's most important for John to know, because this happens in 70 A.D., and he's probably writing this. this. This sacking of Jerusalem occurred 20 years before he writes this. Jesus wants John to know that the light is still with him. That when he turns, he sees not just one, but seven candlesticks, seven menorahs, if you will. And the Son of Man is walking in between him. The light of the temple, although carried off by Roman soldiers... John is shown that it still exists for him and for all of his people. That God has not left him. That God is still with his people. The glory is still with Israel because he promised them, I will place my dwelling in your midst and I shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. It was that Shekinah, it was that glory, it was, it was God being with them in the fiery cloud for Israel. Now it's the Son of Man with his eyes of fire and ablaze, walking amongst the churches, still guiding the course of his people. And this is a theme that you have in all seven scenes of Revelation, even before the worst of the scenes. It's always the rider on the right horse. It's always the Son of Man walking among them. What he is saying and what he is constantly telling us that no matter how bad this gets, I've got you covered. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. John needs reminding. We all need reminding. And this is why this message begins this way is that we still have the light, we still have the glory of God. Rome may have tried to carry off a light out of the temple, but he's saying, I'm still walking among you. And the fire now is in Jesus' eyes. He's asked to write to the seven churches. These churches really did exist. Now I understand that we've already 
Pastor Walt has already taken us through. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to come back to the seven churches. We did this on purpose so that now that you have seen the horror show, we've been through the seven seals. We, we went through Revelation 13 and talked about the beast and talked about the remnant and all of those things. The reason we kept the seven churches till now is what is the message for the church in the midst of the horror show? Why talk about the seven churches now? Because this is our history. This is you and me. And this is how we're going to face the future from here on out. Because the seven churches is the total history of the Christian church from the first century at the time of John's writing all the way to you and I sitting here today and all the way on to the second coming. What does the church look like throughout this horror show? What is the church doing? What is she not doing? And that's why I wanted to save the seven churches today, because this message is specifically to you and to me. And John wants us to know that no matter what happens, no matter what goes on, he's still walking among us. That glory is ours because Jesus is still walking among us. Remember when we did the seven seals, he wanted you to know that no matter what happens in the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth seal, that that rider is still on that horse and he rides out to conquer and to continue to conquer until there's no more conquering. So you don't get thrown off that these are actual seven churches. These seven churches actually did exist in Asia Minor. And if you look at them on a map, some say that you could take a menorah and you could lay each stick on each of these places. It probably was a postal route. And it goes in this specific order for a reason. So don't get thrown that these were seven actual churches and to think that this message was only for them. The reason that God picked seven churches to show John to is because seven is God's number. Seven is Revelation's number. This is a totality. This is the church, if you will. Whenever you see seven in Revelation, you can be assured it is a totality. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, the seven churches, it is a totality of human history. Beginning when Jesus went back to the kingdom up until now, up until the second coming, it's a totality, if you will. He goes until there is no more to go. Time will go until there is no more time. That's what the number seven represents. So yes, they were real, but they were meant to be, uh, the, the, the message was meant to be prophetic. You and I have a message, even though Ephesus may have been uh, destroyed long, long ago. The church in Ephesus has a message for you and me because you and I belong in that church. Because he said, write what you've seen, what is, and what is to take place when? After this. This message isn't just for them. It's for the entire church. John is wanting us to know that. Now, I understand it's one sermon. And you can't do all seven churches in one sermon. I mean, this is a supersonic flyby. So I left a, 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 hand, a handout in your bulletin just to summarize the seven churches for you. And I encourage you, go back and read Revelation 2 and 3. And, and, and I just tried to summar, summarize all of the churches for you. But today I want to focus on the first and the last Okay, the first and the last, to, to get an idea of the history of the church, what happened to it, and why are we in the position that we are in today. All have the same format, all the letters. It's a greeting to the angel. In other words, a greeting to the messenger of the church. They get a picture of Jesus, and the picture of Jesus is always what they need. For whatever they're going through, they're, they're given a picture of Jesus for exactly what they need. You with me? Okay? A picture of Jesus for exactly what's going on and what they need. There's an exhortation. There is a, a praise for whatever it is they're doing right. And then there's a what? And then there's a rebuke for what they may be falling short in. And that picture of Jesus is supposed to take care of whatever they're falling short in. There's a consequence of not overcoming or changing. He tells them what will happen if they don't heed this warning, this loving warning that he has. There's a promise to the overcomer. And then there's appeal to hear what? To hear the Spirit. At the end of each letter, he says, let the Spirit Speak and let anyone who can hear, hear what the Spirit is saying 
to the churches. It's the other reason why I know that this just wasn't for an ancient church. It was for you and me. That it was for anyone who will what? Anyone that will hear. I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing that 2,000 years ago, this message goes to our prophet, our, our, uh, uh, the one that gives us our exilic letter. And I think it's amazing that that same voice goes to his ear and comes to yours and mine today in 2014. Let anyone who will what? Hear what the Spirit is saying. So you're ready to hear what the Spirit may be saying today. Okay. There's three exceptions to this. Two churches have no rebuke, Smyrna and Philadelphia. He has nothing bad to say about those two churches. And there's one church that has no exhortation, Laodicea. He has nothing good to say about Laodicea. And we will get there. And maybe if we have a little time, we'll talk a little bit why I think that he's got no rebuke for Philadelphia and for Smyrna. I have an idea. I have an idea of what has happened. See, the first half of church history, if you look in your handout, the very first half of church history, there are more faithful than there are enemies. There are more faithful than there are, than there are, than there uh, are people who are not. But as the church goes along, by the time it gets to the second half, there are more unfaithful than there are faithful. What's happening to the church? What happens is that it begins to degenerate. I'm sorry. John develops this further in his gospel. But he says, okay, evil increases to the point of leaving our first love. This is the first problem with the first church all the way to the end where he's threatening or actually warning to say that he is going to spit the church out of his mouth. So you see that the warnings become more intense. The faithful become fewer and far between. The exhortations become weaker and the rebukes become stronger. What's happening to the church? What's going on with her? She's degenerating. Along with the world that she's in, the same thing that is happening to the planet is happening to the church. God's warnings become more severe. In the first church, he says, I will come. And in the last one, he says, I will spew you out. So why this degeneration? What's the matter with her? What's the matter with us? I have a theory and a thread and some thoughts, but it begins with the first church. You ready? Welcome to Ephesus, the first church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now immediately you don't know what's wrong with the church, but what does she need? She needs his presence is what she needs because this is the picture that's given him. He holds the seven stars, which means he's in control of the church. And not only is he in control of it, he doesn't control it from a throne way beyond Orion's gate. He controls it by being among her. Lo, I am with you always. The first church has the assurance that Jesus is walking among them. No matter what I'm about to tell you as to where you have fallen short, he's still where? He's still with them. This is what he tells Ephesus. I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them to be what? Have found them to be false. I also know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not what? You have not grown weary. Jesus says, I know. I know, he says, I know who you are. I know what's happening with you. John develops this further in his gospel, which he writes after this. But he's telling us there's no need to hold back. What are you waiting for? If we don't confess our sin before Jesus, are we keeping something from him that he does not know? What are we afraid of? What is this church afraid of? He says, I know who you are. I know your works. I know your deeds. He holds that star in his hand. He already knows. And by the way, he still loves us. There's that wonderful priestly blessing, you know, that we recite all the time. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the, Lord, may the Lord look right through you. May he see you through and through and give you peace anyway. That's really what it's saying in Leviticus. Literally is what it says in Hebrew. He does look us through and through. He knows who we are. We're not keeping anything from him. And yet he loves us anyway. This church has no toleration for evil. They test apostles' claims who claim to be true, but find them to be false. They endure with patience. They are bearing up and they are persevering. These are all the good things that they have to say. What kind of church is Ephesus so far? What is the kind of church that that when somebody comes and says, "I'm, I'm a believer, I'm a believer, yet they test them, test them to find out who they are. I think the Bible says this. I think we should do this. Apostles that come along. What kind of church is this? It's a church that places a high price on doctrinal purity. This is a doctrinally pure church. One that's intent on sound doctrine. When they come up against false teaching, what do they do with it? They expose it. They, they, they keep it away from them. This is a doctrinally pure church. Jesus commends them for this, by the way. This is their exhortation. This is their condemnation. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. They are commended for it. But the doctrinally pure church is told you have lost what? You have lost your first love. So I'm sorry, I did what I shouldn't have done, and I deleted a slide. Okay. have to believe me. Actually, it's right here. Verse 4, <laughs> Revelation 2. Take a look. But I have this against you, he says, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Doctrinally pure church, persevering in upholding the purity of that doctrine. But they've abandoned what? The love they had when? Right at the beginning. The first love. See, a lawyer comes and tries to trip up Jesus with this question one day. He said, you shall love the Lord. The lawyer said, what is the greatest commandment? Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus doesn't go to the commandments, by the way. He doesn't go to Exodus 20. He goes to Leviticus and he goes to Deuteronomy. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. By the way, is that one of the Ten Commandments? Not really. Okay, not the way it's worded there. It's kind of, kind of the first commandment, is it, right? Kind of, or kind of a combination of the first three, really, or the first two, really. So he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You find that in Deuteronomy 6. He says, this is the greatest, and what? First commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. When it comes to doctrinal purity, what is Jesus saying? You can be doctrinally pure on paper, but you're not fulfilling even the letter of the law because you've lost what? You've lost your first love. Okay? The first love. So what, what he's saying is that there is at least two loves in the life of a believer. Love for God, right? And love of who? And love of the neighbor. Now, Is Ephesus' problem the love of the neighbor? Technically, kind of, yes, okay, but we're not there yet, okay? We're not there yet. They believe they care about their neighbors. They think that they care about their neighbors. But their problem is their first love. Now, we may think then that they've lost their love for God. They're no longer in love with God. But what is the only impetus that God gives us to love him? Did we love first? Or did he? He lost. This is Ephesus' problem. They forgot that they are loved. You with me? They don't love anymore. Or they think that they love. Or they think that what they're doing is out of love. But the reason that Jesus is rebuking them is that they've lost their first love. They forgot that God loved first. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how I love him. Why? Because he first loved me. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He loved before I even could 
take one step. He told Abraham that he took his faith and reckoned it as righteousness long before Abraham ever submitted to be circumcised. God's love comes first. He acts first. The only reason that you and I even have the opportunity to love is because he created, created us with free will and he loved us first. He showed us the way. This is what love is like. Love takes in no consideration of what has happened before. Love is kind. It's patient. Is not arrogant. Does not take into account something done wrong. The reason Ephesus is having such trouble is that they forgot that they are what? That they are loved. They've forgotten that. See, this was Israel's problem before the exile. Now, we did, we did a series on the exile two years ago when we went through the book of Hosea. Remember? And what is the reason that Israel was called into exile? Because they would no longer worship God. They were disobedient. They were idolaters. Okay? But why? Did you ever think why they did this? Why did they do it? Could it be? That just like Ephesus, they had lost their first love? Take a look at what the prophet says to them. Jeremiah 2 tells Israel, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Again, the prophet takes them back to their honeymoon. God's honeymoon with his people was in the wilderness. He delivers them out of Egypt and he brings them into the wilderness. This is their honeymoon. You see? Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it were guilty. Disaster came upon them, says the Lord. The language is of marital devotion, if you will. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? What wrong did they find in me? Whose problem is this? Is this God's problem with Israel or is this Israel's problem with God? What did they forget? There is chosen people. He chose them himself. You're my people. You're my bride, he says. And yet they now have gone to other gods. Now you may on the surface just say this is just simple disobedience. But it's actually what they found wrong in him. It's what they forgot. Because listen to what Jeremiah says. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves. Cracked cisterns that can hold no water. What is a cracked cistern? Could it be obedience without love? Could it be that they forgot that they could have the living water for free and they went and they dug their cisterns themselves? In other words, they began acting like slaves. For some reason, they believed that they were slaves, that, that chosen meant slavery, and it means slavery to the letter of the law. And God's saying all along, it's you who have chosen. It's you who have forgotten. You've forgotten that I am your husband who loves you so and have redeemed you out of the bondage of your sin. Because this is what they say. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become plunder? For long ago you broke your yoke and burst your bonds and you said, I will not serve. On every high hill and under every green tree you played and sprawled and played the prostitute. On the surface we look at this and just say Israel was just flat out disobedient. But why? Because they forgot God loved them. They forgot that God is not a slave owner. And they began operating and working as what? As slaves. And any time you begin to enslave a people that was created with free will, this is what you will have. Their rebellion was brought about simply because they forgot that he loved them. And not simply that they just decided to disobey. You with me? They think they need to be a slave. Why would they think that? 
Why do they look upon being chosen as a yoke of slavery? We look at Israel and we ask that question, but we can ask the same question of us today in Ephesus and Laodicea and at Grace Point and all through Christianity. Why do we believe that we're enslaved? Why do we insist on digging our own cisterns when all we have to do is ask for the living water and it will be given to us? Why do we insist on hiding from him when he knows all? Because we've lost our first love. Either we've never had it, either we've never felt it, either we've never experienced it, or we have and we've forgotten. And this is why the letters begin with a picture of Jesus every time that the letter comes up. They've lost their first love. And the results, you can look on your sheet. The results of the church no longer operating in love, no longer remembering who loves them. Removing love from the equation, replacing obedience with love. In other words, replacing slavery with love. And now the church begins its down world spiral. See, it's got real stuff to do. It's got heavy duty, real stuff to do for God. And they're trying to do it without love. And when, in, when a church begins to do that, they will begin to take shortcuts. The church sidesteps love because it doesn't seem to work. And this church is nearly a whole history of trying to be obedient to God, and, and, but not believe that He really loves them, and no longer being able then to truly love each other or to love Him because they've forgotten their first love, and that is that God loves us. The church sidesteps love because it takes too long. Doesn't seem to be enough. That can't be enough. I wake up every day and, 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 and just be kind, just be loving, just smile at people, say thank you. That's not enough. That can't be enough. Love takes too long. We want it and we want it now. So the church then begins to sidestep it. The church begins and says, I think I'll help love out a little bit. And they begin to use other tools, if you will. And the whole church history is a complete illustration of that. Fear, coercion, force. Pastor Walt shared with us the beast, Revelation 12, Revelation 13. The reason why we wanted to save the seven churches is because the only thing that goes up against the beast and wins is what? Is love. The beast is the church with love taken out of it. Satan is told, God, I have a better way. Uses evolutionary thought. Removes love from the equation. All he talks about love up at the beginning. You can love, but when you get up to a point to where there's this neighbor that you can't love, then the beast gives you permission to take revenge. And the church has been doing it. For 1,260 years, or, or did it for 1,260 years. And by the way, what happened in 1798 when everybody had finally had it? They did just what Israel did. They threw off the shackles, and they threw off the church, and they threw away God and Jesus because the church had done this to it. The church had perverted its teachings. They turned Jesus and God into offensive gods. Turned the cross into a sword. You guys beginning to see? So the history gets to the point. The church degenerates to the point to where Jesus has nothing good to say about it at all. Fast forward to Laodicea. By the way, what church are we in, according to the prophet? This is us, isn't it? Jesus is speaking directly to us. The Laodicean church is the last church. It's the final church before this all comes to an end. We're it, if you will. We're it. The angel, do the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither what? You're neither cold nor hot. 
I wish that you were either cold or hot. He says, I wish. That's about the kindest thing he can say. I wish that you were one or the other. Or both. He didn't care. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and what? And naked. Laodicea has no apostasy, no heresy, no Jezebel, yet Jesus can't find one good thing to say about her. Spiritual lukewarmness apparently makes you uninterested even in heretical teachings. The church simply does not what? Does not care. By the way, this is exactly the way the world will look. Love removed from the equation, Jesus said, and the love of many will wax cold because of the hardness of this world. They will become what? They will become apathetic. Lukewarm. Hot or cold drinks can be what? Can be refreshing. Lukewarm drinks, what do they make you want to do? They're nauseating, is what Jesus is saying. Okay? That word to spit out isn't, isn't a, a spit. Okay? It's not a spit. It's not that word. It's the Greek word or where we get the word emesis from. Okay? Literally, vomit is what he's saying. Jesus looks at this church and says, you make me want to throw up. See, as the letters go, the church steadily declines to the point to where she doesn't hate. She doesn't love. She just doesn't what? She just doesn't care. She doesn't care anymore. She's inauthentic. What she claims to be and what she is are two completely different things. In reality, she believes that she is. In reality, she believes that she is a true church of the living God. But she's not living in reality. She's blind to her condition. You do not realize that you're what? You don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. By the way, what is the only thing, what is the only thing that can cure somebody who's wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked is somebody to love them. The church has gotten to the point to where either trying to remain doctrinally pure as the church has been trying to do for 2,000 years without love, now it's to the point to where they feel they don't need love. I am rich and have need of nothing. I can do it myself. In fact, I can love. Watch me. And all of the things that we try to do, all of the acts that we try to do, blind us to our real condition. To remain doctrinally pure has blinded us. I've got present truth. I am the remnant. And Jesus is standing on the outside of the door trying to get in. What have we done with him and his love? It's not that our problem isn't that we're not willing to love. It's just that we're not willing to be loved. Because we look the lover in the eye and tell him flat out, we don't need it. Because it's too hard. It's too hard to confess my sin. It's too hard to believe that I truly am forgiven because of what he has done for me. It's too hard to believe that his righteousness is mine because he just gives it to me. I refuse to be loved. The church refuses to be loved. So this is the point with Laodicea that cannot be overemphasized. There is not one good thing about this church. Is there a little good thing? Is there one little program? Is there something? Jesus says no. Not one good thing. See, Laodicea is worse off than Sardis. If you look at the church in Sardis, there's still a few that are wearing their white robes. By the way, where'd they get those robes? Jesus gave them to them. White robes were given to them. 
The remnant people back in chapter 16, even during Armageddon, are given what? They're given white robes of victory even before it takes place. Sardis even still has a few people who are willing to be loved and in turn make them loving because they really believe that Jesus gave them those white clothes as a gift. Laodicea will not, will not wear them. The opposite of love is not hate. Remember Jesus said, I wish you that you were hot or cold. You know, in order to hate, you have to love something else enough in order to hate something else. Hate is the catalyst of love. It's not the opposite. It's the catalyst. I heard one baseball fan talk about how he, he's a Giants fan, and how he hated the Dodgers. Hate the Dodgers. He says, I hate the Dodgers with a white-hot passion. I hate the Dodgers with a hatred that only love can understand. I love that because that's what Jesus is saying. If you've got hate in your soul, he says, I can do something with that. Apathy, he can do nothing with. The opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is apathy. And the reason Laodicea is apathetic, it believes because they don't need the love of Jesus anymore. We can do it ourselves. We have the letter of the law. We have doctrine. The church will try to carry out what it, what it surrendered back at its beginning, uh, back in, in, in the first century with Ephesus. And this is the inevitable end. Still trying to do what they're trying to do, but no longer loving. And now it's to the point to where Jesus can't even get in the door. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. But notice Jesus' counsel. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me what? Gold, right? That's one thing they don't need. They got all kinds of gold. They're rich and have needed nothing. By the way, Laodicea was. Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake. I'm not sure what year it is. I'll have to look it up. But the Roman emperor tried to help them out. The city said, no thanks. We got it covered. That's how rich they were. They could rebuild themselves. So here he is trying to sell them that which they exactly do not need. And, and, and that's what they're saying. We don't need this. So it can't be gold, gold. It's gold what? Gold refined by the fire. Now, the only place that gold is used figuratively in the entire New Testament, let alone the book of Revelation, it is never used figuratively in the book of Revelation except right here. Okay, because this can't, the, the real gold, actual gold, does not help us out with Laodicea because Laodicea has all the gold they need. You with me? This is the only place that it's used figuratively. Peter says, so that genuineness of your faith being what? being more precious than gold, that is, though perishable, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What is Revelation doing? Revealing Jesus. So what does the gold represent? Jesus has faith for us. The one cure to all of this is faith. And they have to have faith in what? What is it they have to have faith in? I reprove and discipline those who I what? Who I love. We don't even have the faith. That's the point, is that we don't even have the faith to know that He loves us. He has to give us that too. And it's the reason why we don't come to Him. It's because we don't even have enough faith to know that He loves us. By the way, anything done without love is what? Is sin. Anything done without faith is what? Is sin. Obedience to the letter of the law, Jesus is saying, is not obedience if it's not done with or in love. In fact, love is the only thing that fulfills the law. The church is constantly trying to, to obey but not love. Because it's easier to do, by the way. Pharisees would argue with you. No, it's hard to do. It's hard to figure out exactly what 10% is of your cumin. Okay? It's hard to remember the 472 inundations to the commandment of not breaking the Sabbath. It's hard to live by those 1,072 inundations to the inundations. Compared to love your neighbor as yourself. I think I'd rather try to keep the Sabbath. 
Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Confess to God that I truly need him, that I'm wretched, I'm poor, I'm pitiable, I'm blind, I'm naked. I'd rather try to quit eating cheese. What else are they given? Oops. Therefore, I, anoint, I, I tell you to buy from me gold refined by the fire, rich white robes. What are rich white robes? You come, you confess your sin to Jesus. What does he do? Forgives you. Okay? I bring my, I bring my, my sin, I bring my, my poor, wretched, pitiable state to Jesus. And what do I get? I get forgiveness. And then he says, not only will he forgive you, he who is faithful and true will forgive you, but he also will cleanse you from all what? From all unrighteousness. Not only does the sin not exist anymore, it's completely covered. In what? In white. Come, let us reason together, the prophet said. Though your sin may be as scarlet, it will be as white as snow. It's not that you're a forgiven sinner anymore. It's as if you have never, ever sinned. This is what the church has forgotten. This is what the church no longer has. This is what the church does not think she needs. Why? Because we've got the letter and we've gotten so good at it. We have obedience and we've gotten so good at it. And we want credit for it. But he said obedience without love is what? Is not obedience. We don't want to believe that love fulfills the law. It's, it's, it's not that you can, it, it isn't that you can sin and, and be loving. That's not the point. You can't commit a sinful act and be loving. If you're truly loving, you're not sinning. You know, when the disciples were, were breaking all those uh, Sabbath rules out in the fields and the, and the Pharisees were shocked and they said, how come your disciples do what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus said, if you remembered this, and he quotes Hosea 6, 6 to him, that, that God desires compassion. He desires mercy. He desires love, love that will not go away. He says, you would not have condemned the innocent. He said, it isn't just that they're loving guys and they're allowed to break the Sabbath. God doesn't wink at a sin if it's done in a loving way. He said, if they're truly loving, they are what? Innocent. If we can love God, love neighbors and our neighbor as ourself, but first, our first love to know, to have faith that God loves you. That this is the message to the church. This is the message that is indispensable to always remember that God loves us. And when we look at the church and it's stalled and it doesn't seem to be growing and and we're not raising enough money and everything else, do you know what our problem is? We're not remembering that God loves us. So he takes care of it. So the shame of your nakedness will not be seen. He gives you faith to know that you are loved. He gives you righteousness because we have none of our own. And then he gives us the most important thing. I salve so you will what? So we will see. What is it we need to see? We need to see our true condition. We need to know that we are poor and wretched and pitiable and blind and naked. And by the way, by the way, Every day we need to be reminded of that. If every day we need to come to Jesus for everything, then every day we need to be reminded of our condition. Otherwise, we're never going to go. Because if we lose that first love, and then what happens is is we continue to degenerate. We try to obey the letter without having love, and we end up back in a loud to see in condition with Jesus standing on the outside knocking on the door. If I don't realize that I am poor, wretched, pitiable, blind, and naked, I've got no reason to come to him. I have no reason to believe that I need love. Laodicea doesn't believe she even needs it. Listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you. And you with me.
The one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What's the cure to all this? Just what he told us at the beginning. The cure is Jesus. I want you to notice one other thing. Yes, the church degenerates. Yes, she gets worse. Yes, she gets to a point to where Jesus can't even say anything good about her. But the church that's the worst is offered the most intimacy with Jesus. No other church is offered this. There's only two churches that are offered love. The strongest one, Philadelphia, and the worst one, Laodicea. It doesn't matter if you're strong or you're weak. And actually, Philadelphia is weak, which is why they're strong. Philadelphia's got no power, says. You're weak. They don't seem to be pulling anything off. On the surface, they look like they're losing. Do you know why? Because they're loving. They were named brotherly love. Anyway, I digress. The most intimate gift offered by God is given to the worst church, the church that is farthest away from it, the church that is shutting him out and having him on the other side of a locked door. And that door is this constant spiritual arrogance that we have, that we think that we're somebody, that we think that our good works buys us something. And when we do, we will be tempted. We will be tempted to always then operate outside of love. I pointed it out before. The difference between the church of the lamb and the church of the beast is only one thing. The church of the beast has decided to do it without love. He appears loving. One of those beasts has, has a tongue like the lamb. He looks like a lamb. He appears to be. But then when he speaks, he speaks like the dragon. His power, his word is all like the dragon. In other words, you can love up to a point. The reason why the beast is so popular is because we like him. Because he will let us love up to a point to where he will let us take out our vengeance on somebody. Kill an enemy that we cannot love. And this is... And, and the only, when it gets to the point to where the beast is at the height of his power, guess which church is the one battling it? Laodicea. She has to remember that the only cure to any of our ills is that we've got to let Jesus in. The most intimate gift is given to the worst church. By the way, that's exactly the opposite of, of how this planet plays. It's exactly the opposite of what evolutionary thought tells us. But it's exactly what God says the heaven economics is all about. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Real quick, Smyrna, Smyrna was the martyred church. Smyrna was the church of the martyrs. Everybody began to persecute Smyrna. Everybody. Jewish brothers and sisters persecuted Smyrna. Rome persecuted Smyrna. Everybody was persecuting Smyrna. But they began to be martyred. And when they did, the martyrdom lasts exactly 10 years, and it goes up to the year 313, to where Constantine finally gives the church the power that it needs to become the beast. Philadelphia is the weakest. Smyrna gives all that it has, gives away all of her power, gives it all away. They've got nothing. As a matter of fact, they're a poor church. He says, not only poor, they're destitute. That Greek word destitute. They absolutely have nothing. All they have is themselves. They begin to martyr themselves. Jesus looks at this church and says, just hang on. You've been through enough. And he has nothing bad to say about it. Weak. Not seeming to do anything. Dying right and left. And then you come to Philadelphia. Completely weak. 
not seem to be accomplishing anything. But Jesus says, you're weak even though you're strong. And this, is, this was the church of the second great awakening. This was the church that, that gave way to Seventh-day Adventism and all of the revival that happened in this nation. At the same time that the beast is rising up out of the sea, this church, this, this, this church is rising up out, out of the land, I mean. They've got nothing in and of themselves. So they empty out of everything in order to receive love. And this is why he has nothing bad to say about him. What we need is Jesus. The message is simple. What we need is Jesus. We're going to wrap it up next week. We're going to go to the very end. Look at the end of sin and how the Lamb is going to come and truly take care of this. Thank you for hanging in there with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for allowing us to take a look at these letters. We thank you for giving this word so long ago and that it lasts and it rings in our ears today. Lord, I for one just ask that we can open the door. Every one of us. I ask for everyone who hears today, everyone who hears, that we just open the door. There are those of us who, who feel that we can't be forgiven. There are those of us who feel that, that we cannot forgive. And all of us, Lord, all of us have this bent in us that simply will not believe how much you love us. Help us to understand it and know that a little bit more today. And I ask God for everyone in this family that no one leaves today without knowing exactly how much you love us. Be with us, Lord, as we fight the battle you have placed before us. And let us be armed with one, one sword, one solution, and that that would be love. We thank you for walking among us. We thank you for not abandoning us. We simply thank you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.